0: We're going through Mark sequentially, and this series of readings right now are kingdom parables. And what I said to you last time, it's still true, is that there are seven kingdom parables, there are seven letters of Paul, pastoral letters. For example, Corinthians, there's two letters, but it's to one church. So if you count them up, there are seven churches that he writes to. And of course, Yeshua writes seven letters to seven churches in Revelation. The kingdom parables and letters to the churches in Revelation and Paul's letter all correlate perfectly. And they're basically the same information from three different perspectives. Yeshua, before he dies, is talking prophetically. After his resurrection, he's talking to existing churches. And, of course, Paul is dealing with pastoral problems during the same time frame. The parables say either the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like something. And the first thing is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is not heaven. It's here on the earth. So what he's talking about is the way his kingdom plays out or exists or is organized or the pathologies or whatever it is here on earth we're not talking about when somebody gets to heaven so in the parable of the sower last week remember we had the four kinds of soil with seed being scattered and we said that there were three pathologies there the first one was satan who steals the word when it's spread about in public the road is a public place So when the word is scattered in a public place, Satan comes along and steals the word away. Then we said that the seed that falls where there's no depth of soil, that's somebody who hasn't been discipled. So your job as parents and grandparents and so forth is to disciple your children so that they have some depth of soil. When the word hits, it will take root and not be made unfruitful by persecution. And then the third one was self, and that's the weeds. And that makes the word unfruitful because you're absorbed with all of the stuff in the world. In other words, we got all sorts of stuff going on, and so we're focusing on that, and we don't focus on the word, and so the word gets choked up. So that was the parable of the seed. Well, today we've got a lampstand, and we've got seed sown in a field. Now, if you look at the same set of parables in Matthew, you've got the parable of the sower... Then you've got the parable of the weeds. Again, seed sown in a field. And so the difference between the two lists, if you will, is we've got this business stuck in the middle of a lampstand that doesn't exist in the Matthew parables. But in the Matthew parables, the explanation of what's going on with the seed is better than in the Mark parables. So what I'm going to do is sort of combine those two things so we can do the lampstand in Mark. And then we'll switch over to Matthew to do the parable of the seeds. Now, there's a correlation between the parables, Paul's letters, and the letters of the churches. So we said that it was Ephesus was the correlation with the the parable of the sower, correlated with the letter to the Ephesians in Paul, and the letter to the Ephesians in Revelation. Well, the next one in Revelation is Smyrna. And in Paul's letter is Philippians. And if you read those three together, you'll see that they're all talking about the same subject. So let's talk about the lampstand. First off, there are two uses of the lampstand example in the New Testament. And they're different. In most of it, what he's talking about is your light shining forth. You being a bearer of the light of God into the world. And that's what most people think of. That's not what's being talked about here. This is a different subject with the same metaphor. So let's read in Mark, and I'm in 421, and he said to them, "Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. By the way, signature phrase of Yeshua, it's all over the letters in Revelation. It's all over his speeches, is this idea, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. I think what that means is if you go back to, for example, Isaiah, or the Psalms, where it's talking about idols, and one of the things it says, they have eyes but don't see, they have ears but don't hear, and so forth. So the idea of anyone has ears to hear, let him hear, is are you real, are you able to hear and understand, or are you some kind of an idol worshiper and your ears are blocked off? I think that's what it means. But notice in 422, nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. That's different than don't hide your light under a bushel because your job is not to make secret things manifest your job is to bring the light of God through you into the world what we're talking about here is Yeshua not you because what happens in John chapter 1 in him was life and the life was the light of men the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it so Yeshua in John, is referred to as light. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. So the idea of the light here, or the lamp here in Mark 21, is Yeshua, not you. And so His light is going to expose all of the junk and corruption in the world and is going to shine on it and bring that to light. That's not your job. Your job is to reflect the light that's coming through you, He's the one that's going to expose all the secrets. So he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Continuing in verse 24 in Mark. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And this would lead you to the parable of... The three stewards, you know, where they were given a talent, that's not what's being said here. It's superficially similar, and you would think that it was, but in the case of the three stewards who are investing the master's money, the stuff that we're talking about is the master's stuff. In other words, I have an investment advisor, and I'm giving him money, and if he does well, I'll give him more money because he's making money for me. Here what we're talking about is stuff that you have. So in the case of the investment advisor, it isn't his money. And certainly he gets a commission for managing it, but it isn't his. It's the master's. What we're talking about here is your stuff, the stuff that you have. And he's saying that with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And what we're talking about there, of course, is hypocrisy. And what he's saying here is the standards that you use in dealing with other people are the same standards that he is going to use when he deals with you. And it's what I call God's iron law of sowing and reaping. As you behave, so it will be measured back to you. And what he's saying is those who use honest weights and measures with their fellows will in fact have more stuff added to them whereas those who use dishonest weights and measures with their fellows, even that which they have will be taken away from them. So now we're going to come to the parable of the field, and I'm going to ask four questions, and I'm going to try and answer them. So the first question is, who is he talking to? The second one is, what is he saying? That isn't necessarily clear. The third one is, why is he saying it? And then the fourth one is, what does it mean to us? That's what I'm going to try and do. As I say, I I had real trouble figuring this out last night. So let's actually read it from Matthew as opposed to the one in Mark, because Mark is abbreviated. Mark has just got a little snippet, whereas Matthew has got it much longer and expanded, so it's easier to figure out what's going on. So I'm in Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, the first thing that that tells you is the fact that there are weeds in the field is deliberate. It's deliberate on the part of an enemy, and the fact that they remain there is deliberate on the part of God. Deliberate in both cases. And what it also says is that the good wheat is so valuable to him that he will not risk uprooting any of it before it heads out and can be reaped. In other words, he's not willing to risk the loss of any of the wheat plants prematurely. And so he will let the weeds grow up among them to avoid that loss. Which tells you something about how valuable he thinks that the good wheat is. By the way, the weed in this case is probably Darnell. Darnell is what's called false wheat looks just like wheat. It grows in wheat fields, and it's toxic. It's pretty much been eliminated in Europe and the United States, but there are lots of places where it still grows, and one of the things about it is in sufficient doses it's deadly. In small doses it is intoxicating. So. People will grow some Darnell and mix it into their bread and the bread will then cause intoxication in small doses. Of course, if you mismanage the dose, it then kills you, which is kind of exciting. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about something that the seeds look superficially very similar and it isn't clear until the harvest which one is which. So first question is who's he talking to well his disciples got no idea what he's talking about the Jews got no idea what he's talking about so as he's saying these parables nobody who's listening to them understands them now he explains them to his disciples in order for his disciples then to be able to write them down clearly so that the people who are reading the gospel years later will understand them But this is not information that they are going to be able to make use of. It is simply, I am transmitting this to you. I want you to write it down because it's for somebody else. This is not practical information that you, my disciples, or you, the Jews, are going to be able to use. This is something for someone else. And the only reason we understand it is because he explained it to us. One of the problems that we have, I certainly have, I expect many of you do, too, that you've grown up in the church and you've heard these things over and over and over again. And you read them and you just say, how can anybody not understand that? It's so obvious. Well, it's obvious when he explains it to you. It's sort of like Pharaoh's dreams in Exodus where Pharaoh has these dreams and nobody can interpret them. Oh, what do you mean nobody can interpret it? They're pretty obvious to me. Well, they're obvious once Joseph interprets them. And then you can't figure out how nobody understands them because they seem so obvious. So you need to, again, put yourself in the situation here of the people at that time, and they didn't understand it. So what they do is they come and ask, what are you talking about? And of course, in the case of the parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds, he does explain it. As we get further into the parables, he stops explaining it even to them, which is why you get so much wacky preaching today, because there isn't actually an explanation that's been given directly. I was listening to a teacher years ago, and there's a place in Matthew where he says, You guys understand the parables? And they say, Yeah, boss, we understand them. And he says, why didn't you write it down then? Because I sure don't understand them. So he's speaking then not to the people there because there's no information that they're going to be able to use in this parable. He's speaking, obviously, into the future. What's he saying? Well, if you go to the letter to Smyrna, which is in Revelation 2.8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write... The words of the first and the last, he who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. Ding, 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 ding. Key phrase. But are a synagogue of Satan. Who planted the weeds? An enemy did, right? So, they are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. I have no idea what the ten days is. Just let you know right up front. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear. Signature phrase. What the Spirit says to the churches: The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So the key phrase here is: You have those who say they are Jews and are not. Notice it doesn't say the Jews; it says false Jews, not actual Jews. In other words, this is not anti-Semitic. This is not the church divorcing itself from the Jews. What he's saying is that these people who claim to be Jews are in fact not so. That's sort of the first thing. And the point here is that these people are within the church. They are weeds mixed into the field, if you will. So at the end, what's going to happen is there are going to be those who say they are Jews and are not and i will do in parentheses those who say they are christians and are not and what it's saying is persecution is going to come to you from within the church you got problems with those who are not of the church you know for example you've got in various parts of the world christians are persecuted by muslims they are persecuted by hindus that seems to be great outdoor sport in India right now. You've got them persecuted by governments. That's what's going on in China. So persecution of the church is endemic throughout the world and that's not what Yeshua is saying here. What he's saying is that the persecution we're talking about is from within the body. That's important. And what he's saying also is it isn't possible to weed that stuff out because the real ones and the false ones are only going to be revealed at the harvest so when you've got strife and tribulation in the church and every group of more than two people winds up having strife and disagreement that's just the way we are and there's always the temptation to say you're one of the weeds that was planted by the enemy but in doing that, you in fact may be one of the weeds that's going after some wheat. Because what the parable says is you won't be able to tell the difference until the harvest. And the one that's going to be able to tell the difference is the angels. Because the angels are going to come and they are going to reap. And the first thing that they're going to reap is the weeds. For those of you who are rapture mavens, the first ones that get taken out are the weeds. And they get thrown in the furnace. So what he's saying is that there will be persecution in the church. That persecution is being allowed. And it's being allowed because the true members of the kingdom of God in that church... Are valuable to him and he isn't willing to risk uprooting any of them while he's rooting out the ones who are false members of the kingdom. So the next question is why did he say it? Well my take on that is it's prophetic. He is a prophet and he comes to Israel as a prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Amos or any of those guys. So he comes and he calls Israel to repent. Israel does not repent. So then what he does is he switches from plain speak and plain calls to repentance to code speak, parables, and prophetic speech. So people accusing him of casting out demons by Beelzebub, after that, everything is very much like Isaiah. Anybody ever read all of Isaiah? Are there parts of it that are hard to understand, even today? Of course there are, because there are parts of it that are for the end times and won't be revealed clearly until they actually happen. It's the same thing with Yeshua after the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He's now speaking stuff prophetically, and some of it we understand because he explains it to us, and some of it I don't think we still understand. But this parable is one that he explains, so it's fairly easy. So the reason he said it from my perspective is it's prophetic. And then the last question is, what does it mean to us? What are we supposed to do with this? And as I said before, one of the things that you should understand is to expect persecution and turmoil from within the church, from people that you call brothers and sisters. And what he's saying is, don't be too quick to look at your brother or sister who is giving you a hard time and saying, ha ha, you are false wheat. What did he say about the light in the basket? With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That's a lead-in to this. So what he's saying is the way you treat your brothers and sisters is the way that you will be treated. And there's always a tendency when you get crosswise of your brother to shake the dust off your feet and declare them anathema and cast them out of the synagogue and all those kinds of things. Anybody ever seen that happen? I will suggest that's what's happening in the United States right now. I will suggest to you that there are churches where if you go and you talk about some biblical subjects, you will be run out of that church. And the poster child for that is, of course, the open and affirming. But there are other things. I mean, that's not the only thing. In fact, we've had speakers come here periodically. And one of the things that the speaker will often do is come and talk to me or Ray. and says, all right, what does your church think about X? Because they know that if they talk about X, that there's going to be half of the congregation that's going to go like this. So they very often come and ask Ray or me and say, all right, what do you think about these controversial topics? Because I don't want to have the rest of my message get flushed because I say something like, there is no rapture. Or, there is a rapture, because if you go into a church that believes in the rapture and you say there's no rapture, they'll all go at you like this. In fact, people have broken fellowship over it. I got thrown off of an internet list over it one time, which is fun. But you understand what I'm saying? And what he's saying is the measure that you use is the measure that will be used back for you, and that you are to expect division within the church. Conflict. It's going to happen. And the other thing that he is saying fairly loud and clear, is that he expects you to stand and to endure. Notice in the letter to Smyrna, there isn't anything in here about him coming to rescue you. I'll read it again. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life you as near let him hear what the spirit says to the churches the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death notice there isn't any intimation in there of I'm, I'm going to come and rescue you now in other places there are such intimations so I'm not suggesting that there is no possibility of rescue I'm simply saying that in this particular case he's got a mixed synagogue he's got wheat and tares growing up He is not willing before the harvest to send his angels in and clean out the weeds, which means that the wheat is going to have a hard time. So, I'm not sure what to do with all that except what I told you. It's not necessarily a rah-rah sermon, but what it does do is it gives you, I hope, a perspective as you are dealing with other churches to understand that this is all predicted. And in all of those churches, every one of them, to include the Open and Affirming Church, all of them, you have got people in there who are hanging in there, who aren't buying the BS, but they can't speak because if they do speak, they would be thrown out of the church. So they don't. They're persecuted this persecution is not Muslim persecution or Hindu persecution or communist persecution or any of those. This is persecution from within the body. And that's really hard to bear because you expect support and help from within the body. You don't expect persecution, but he's saying it's going to be there.